Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It was almost 10 years ago in December 2011 when this show, Keenon, resided on the TechCrunch network and focused mostly on technology. I interviewed one of America's leading journalists and writers, Kurt Anderson, about a really stimulating piece he wrote for Vanity Fair called You Say You Want a Devolution. Anderson, who's always been a very perceptive uh, critic or observer of American culture, had seen something which other people hadn't seen, or maybe it was so obvious that he was the only person to see it. But what he noted in his Vanity Fair 2011 piece was that nothing in America seemed to have changed, that fashion, culture, all of it was unchanging except technology. It was a, a really, I thought, a very perceptive piece and, and very accurate and true in many ways. And, and so I had him on the show. We had a good chat. And uh, nine years later, Anderson's back in action. This time, though, in a much bigger, more profound and challenging way. I think what he realized uh, or realizes now is that from that 2011 piece, where he pointed out that nothing much had changed except technology, there was one really, really, really big change. So big, in fact, that he missed it and practically everyone else missed it. Back in 2011, what Anderson missed was that America had changed or was changing. In the midst of all this absence of cultural change, we may have all been listening to the same kind of music and wearing the same kind of clothes, but America was profoundly changed um, or changing. And today, of course, in 2020, uh, the climax or crisis of all this American change is happening. And to welcome or perhaps mourn this change, uh, Kurt Anderson has a new best-selling book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Uh, it's not only about the unmaking of America, but the unmasking of America. Uh, Kurt, you're looking very young. It doesn't seem as though over the past <laughs> nine years you have any more gray hairs. You've kept all your hair and you're looking very cheerful and youthful. Uh, well, relatively cheerful. I'll, 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 you know, youthfulness is in the eye of the beholder. Um, but thank you. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Not much has happened over the last nine years, right? Nothing, Not really. No, it's all, it's, as I said, it's all the same. It's, it's interesting, though, what, I, what happens, as I talk about in the book, is simultaneously... I, I, I was, I was becoming, I had been becoming aware and wrote about it in 2006 about inequality and insecurity and, hey, this, this has changed. Something's gone wrong here. What is it? I certainly didn't pay close enough attention until starting then. But in fact, the, the, what we talked about last time and, and what this book, Evil Geniuses, is about, I, I was sort of becoming aware of simultaneously. I just, it took, until now, I hadn't figured out how they, uh, click together in my kind of unified theory of the American universe. I couldn't tell from the book uh, whether or not you think this absence of cultural change is 
part of the conspiracy of the evil geniuses of American corporate capitalism. Um, you suggest that sometimes in the book, but you're never explicit and you're a bit ambivalent about coming up with conspiracy theories given the mania for conspiracy theories in America. Um, is there someone pulling the strings here? Is there some genius on Madison Avenue or in the White House who are inventing this cult of nostalgia to take people's mind off the profound inequalities and injustices of contemporary America? Uh, my short answer is no, they are geniuses, but not that omnipotent and geniusy. However, however, um, certainly w there are two parts of this cultural dynamic and history that I talk about. One is the nostalgia part, which began right on the heels of the late 60s. And, and that, again, wasn't created by Milton Friedman and CEOs, but they right away, the, the, and, and the Reaganites, Reagan's people and Hamlers used that new American plunge into nostalgia. Absolutely, it was part of their, their marketing plan for, for convincing Americans that the New Deal and all of its all of the social welfare apparatus in America was obsolete, no good, and we should all go back to the great frontier days, basically before before the 20th century. So they definitely used it. This other thing, this 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 stasis, this cultural stagnation into which the the nostalgia of the 70s and 80s, in my telling, devolved or evolved in the 90s. Uh, is a different thing, which in, I mean, and we start with nostalgia and reboots and remakes and recyclings as our kind of central cultural fact. But this thesis of nothing much changing that we talked about nine years ago, um, uh, I, I'm certainly that I don't even think they're aware of it. Probably I could be wrong, and someday we'll find the memos where Steve Bannon was talking about this very thing. Maybe in prison he'll 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 talk about that. But um, uh, I, I I don't what what that stasis did is just uh, unlike oh the good old days were great, which is what nostalgia does and did. The stasis I think has this uh, effect that. As I say, I'm not sure the, the evil geniuses in charge uh, are even aware of making people uh, think that everything is always the same. Yeah, we have computers, we're talking on Zoom, we all of that, of course. But then otherwise, we're dressed, we're staying t-shirt and sneakers and jeans, we're still in the same, sitting on the same Aeron chair, cars don't look so different, all that stuff. So there is this matrix-like illusion that Oh, don't don't be discombobulated. Be reassured. Nothing has really changed that much. When, of course, both the political economy starting around 1980 and the world starting with the digital revolution uh, changed radically and dramatically. So it serves their interests, but I don't think they uh, are are causing it. There's a little bit of an element of of what we might call boomer self flagellization <laughs> if that's not too vulgar on a family show like this in your book and in in some of the pieces you've written especially for the atlantic i had jonathan taplin on 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 this show a couple of weeks ago and i think he suffers the same thing he's perhaps not 
quite as much of a self-flagellist as you, but you kind of take responsibility for the boomer generation. You've got wide shoulders, Kurt. So you suggest that, that the boomer generation that has done so well, of course, over the last 50 years, the liberal aristocracy of which you are a, a, a baron, you have some <laughs> responsibility here. Well, first of all, as, as what has, has happened with the baby boomers and what they were called before baby boomers, which was the Woodstock generation, is, is, is conflating this entire gigantic generation with one part of it. And, and, and as you're suggesting, the, the affluent whatever quarter of it, let's say. But so do I take some responsibility for because I was doing well, I didn't notice that most Americans weren't and did I shrug at like the, 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 the decimation of whole industries and how that affected people because I was doing okay and automation wasn't destroying my job and outsourcing and offshoring weren't destroying my careers. Yeah, I did. So I don't, I mean, I, 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 I admit to that, but to do otherwise, I mean, how could one of my age write this book and not, and not, do so, I think. Should there be a cultural valve? Of course, for those of us, and I, I'm a kind of a late baby boomer, but we all grew up in the culture of the 60s, which assumed that when the culture went bad, it, 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 the, the valve was culture. So you had the who smashing up their equipment. You had the sex pistols. And we don't have that today. Is, is that what we've missed? that the anger, the resentment has only been manifested now on the internet, on QAnon, or through Trump, or through other forms of populism, but it never got manifested through popular culture. It's a, good, it's a very interesting point and question. And, and uh, not only the anger didn't, uh, and I often, as, as the Tea Party happened 10 years ago, I often thought how interesting that so many of these old people now uh, protesting and dressing up and yelling and saying, here comes fascism because Obama had been elected, uh, that it was, it was people who perhaps missed out on the, the anger of, and, and protests of circa 1970 and were just coming to it 40 years late uh, and, and finally getting their yayas out by, by joining the Tea Party. So I think, I actually think it's partly that, um, but it is, more than just the anger of the who burning, breaking, or, or Peter Townsend breaking his guitar or, or, or Jimi Hendrix setting it on fire. And by the way, I'm not an early baby boomer, just to be clear. Um, uh, I never saw that stuff. But uh, I, I do think that... Uh, when were you born? Just a... 50, 54. 54. So, so you're still young. Middle. You're still pretty young, Kurt. Ish. Uh, or, or not at least elderly. Um, but uh, so I... I it is, it is beyond the, the lack of rage being much a uh, part of popular culture or music as it was per, for part of rock and roll back then. Um, I, I do think, as I talked about in that original essay we spoke about, and that I incorporate into this larger theory in this book, in this history, is um, that uh, the, 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 that was new. That was exciting. Jimi Hendrix, when one heard it at 13 in 1967, like, holy cow, what is this? It's, it's that kind of radical newness in, in the culture that for whatever set of reasons uh, ceased. And, and so, uh, I mean, part of me, frankly, finds the pandemic for all of its horrors um, uh, 
not exciting, but I, I'm, I have some glimmers of hope that, well, I wanted change. I wanted weirdness. I wanted, I wanted unfamiliarity. Here we are. You describe yourself or as an example of, of being a useful idiot when, when, when it comes to this, as part of this liberal aristocracy. What, what did you mean by that? Or what do you mean by that? Well, useful idiot was a term used earlier in the 20th century by, well, by, by communists in some cases to say, oh, we can get these liberals to do our bidding and, and be liberal and lefty, but we'll get rid of them when we don't need them and become totalitarian, uh, you know, Leninist communists. Then, so what, what I, uh, and, and it was always, it, then it was used by the right to disparage people who were in favor of civil rights or free speech or all of the things of the mid-century. You're a useful idiot of the communists. What, what happened, ironically, it seems to me, is that a lot of us uh, who were in media or in people in politics and, and in general, liberals, who, 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 many of whom, not I, but many who describe themselves, oh, I'm socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. And that was the thing that people described themselves as for the 80s and 90s, meaning don't raise my taxes, but eh, go ahead and do whatever you want in terms, you know, be gay, be whatever. Uh, so I, that's the way in which we were useful idiots, I think, is, is, is basically standing down on economics. You know, the Democratic Party in the 30s and 40s and, and along with the labor union movement into the 50s and 60s had a real left-wing vision. Um, and, then it, and then it abandoned it. And, 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 and the differences on economics between Republicans and Democrats in this country became almost insignificant. And, and that is how we were useful idiots, is, is, not, is just saying, yeah, okay, Fine, because we were the part of the minority at the top, the 20% or whatever, we're doing well. You're such a, a useful idiot, Kurt, that you even quote perhaps uh, Western Europe's most creative Marxist at the beginning of your book, Antonio Gramsci. You, wonderful quote uh, from Gramsci, you, you say at the beginning of the book, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. What are the morbid symptoms in, uh, in the America of 2020? Well, the shortest answer to that is Donald Trump, of course. Uh, and, 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 Not you know, morbid enough, unfortunately. <laughs> I've been familiar with that quote for a long time. And, and uh, when I came across it again, actually, when I was writing my last book, I thought, wow, this, this is morbid symptoms is a great term, and I don't know what it was translated from in Italian, but a great term for, for much of what's happening culturally, politically, economically. I mean, it's another way of saying, of course, what people use the term late capitalism to describe is a kind of morbid symptom, which is, I think, in, economically, is this decadent form of, of capitalism, which is crony capitalism, which is, which is greed to the fore, which is, oh, pick your term, but those are all morbid symptoms. I mean, uh, but Donald Trump, everything about him <laughs> is a morbid symptom between the, you know, one, one, one place America has been and what it, God willing, is going to evolve into. Uh, and it's, it's so I, I, it's hard to get him out of my head when you say, well, what do you mean by morbid symptoms? Him. 
hard to get Trump. Definitely. I mean, it's, for all and, of us, and it's isn't that what we all look forward to more than anything? Is, is imagine well, the day. But, but, but yeah, I, that, I, I think there's some serious stuff here. I, I agree. Obviously, no one, no one wants to see him or hear from him ever again. But this, there's, a, there's a bigger issue here. Gramsci uh, was a big admirer of The Leopard, a uh, wonderful yes. late 19th century book by Dean Lampedusa. Lampedusa. And he famously wrote, you could have had this at the beginning of the book as well, if we want things to say as they are, things will have to change. It was his critique of late 19th century Italy. And of course, they did eventually change and we got Mussolini. But leaving aside that, um, it's all very well getting rid of Trump. And I think that almost goes with, well, that definitely goes without saying. Mm. But uh, Kurt, what kind of change do we need? Uh, uh, how far left have you shifted over the last nine years? Uh, I would, I've shifted left. I mean, I wasn't a Republican before, but yes, I think, I do think we need, I mean, the, the, the moderate way of saying is that, well, we just need to go back to just at least as having as much economic equality uh, as we had in, in 1976. And when, when, when it was high in the United States and as much aggressive antitrust enforcement and so forth. But the problem is, so that's, that's the way to get people, it seems to me, rhetorically on your side, like, oh, that doesn't sound so crazy or radical. But of course, doing all that needs to be done to get us there is radical, is what Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders et al. want and, 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 and demand. And, and so, you know, I am a Warrenite for various reasons and was in the election rather than a Sandersite. But, but you know, the, the programmatically, I mean, uh, uh, obviously universal health care, um, parental leave, uh, high taxes on the wealthy, and on and on are what we need to do. Um, I, but, you know, and we also need to figure out um, the future in which I believe, as almost all the experts believe, is that as a result of technology and as it develops and AI and all the rest, and already we see it, but it's just going to get worse, that there are not enough in this economy, in, in, in an economy, really, enough decently paid jobs because the machines are going to do those jobs. And so how do we deal with that? And, and if we get there, if we get to this super automated future, which I think we will, if we haven't changed the political economy in the way that wealth is shared and redistributed and all the rest, we are, we are super screwed. I mean, uh, if, if we think it's bad now and it's been bad for the last 20 or 30 years with, with most people's incomes just flatlining, I mean, the, 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 the future of, as somebody has called it, digital feudalism will be hideous. And, you know, uh, we, we then begin seeing, and it could happen sooner rather than later, alas, is, is you know, violent outbursts and, and, and revolutionary uh, uh, instability that I don't think any of us will enjoy. Kurt, we are speaking uh, on the eve of Joe Biden's acceptance speech uh, at the, 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 the virtual convention. Uh, this interview will come out a little bit later. So we don't exactly know what, we're gonna, what he's going to say. But I can pretty much guarantee you, and you know this as well as I do, that he'll speak about American greatness, uh, about uh, to, 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 to sort of steal one of your uh, 
terms which you end your book with. So let's go already. Go back to the greatness, the creativity, the fairness of America. That's what Joe Biden is about. Um, are you uncomfortable with Biden's form of nostalgia? Isn't it just the other side of the Trumpian coin? Well, that's a good question. I, 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 and if, if he fully believes it, and I think he does believe it a lot, it, it is the other side of the Trumpian coin, but it's the good side. And, it, and frankly, and, and it's, the, it's the actionable side. I mean, we could, nobody's gonna, he and nobody else is gonna get along with the Republicans as they are constituted today for a long time. So forget that, that's ridiculous nostalgia. But in terms of properly high taxes on the wealthy and, and, and uh, properly aggressive antitrust actions and on and on and on, that's nostalgic, but it's just, it, we, we, it's, 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 as I say, actionable. You can get back there. Other countries do it. Northern Europe does it. Canada does it better than we do. So it's not the kind of, oh, you silly nostalgists will never get there. As opposed, or the ugly nostalgia of Trumpism, which is, I like, you know, they, we liked it when it was all white and, and the patriarchy was, was intact and we didn't have all these immigrants. And we didn't have all these uppity people of color. That is ugly and pathological, of course, and also unfixable or undoable, uh, absent, you know, genocide. So, uh, but that said, yes, uh, Joe Biden's 77-year-old fondness, sentimental fondness for Washington the way it was when he got there in the 1970s is misplaced. Now, uh, but 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 I, as, that's why I spend so much time talking about the political uses of nostalgia in this book because, you know, it's not all bad. Some of it is very bad. Even the good kind, if you if you if you go overboard and just thinking, yeah, let's let's get along with the Republicans like I used to, and and the segregationists like I used to. If you really take that too far, and and that is a worry about him, then you don't get where you need to go. You know, um, and and. Uh, you know, you need to have some some AOC in your ear as well as, yeah, wasn't it nice in the old days? Uh, Kurt, I just made a film earlier this year called How to Fix Democracy, in which I argued that what tied together every anti-pluralist, anti-democratic uh, uh, political figure in, the, in 2020, whether it was Erdogan or Putin, or perhaps Boris Johnson, Trump, of course, was the cult of nostalgia. So you're humming and hawing a bit on this. Don't we simply need to, to, to excusing the pun, move beyond nostalgia? Yes, we, we, we do indeed. And, and, and nostalgia, and we need, but we need to distinguish nostalgia, which is kind of unthinking sentimentalism. We need to distinguish that from there are models, both in the relatively recent past, the United States and the present day in the Nordic countries, for instance. So, uh, you know, and, and, and much of this book is about a, a hung, a prescribing a, a rediscovering of the, the new, all the, the excitement about new challenges and new places and new things, which was a defining character of the American idea in the beginning. Yes, we need to, you need to get back to that. I mean, a certain amount of nostalgia is inevitable. It's a human thing, but we've gone insanely overboard, making it the kind of default instinct that has infected and done mostly bad things to our politics. Yes. I just, I just don't want, uh, hey, wait, it wasn't so bad in certain ways in 1976. 
to get thrown, that baby to get thrown out with the bathwater of throwing out nostalgia. But yeah, you're right. Kurt, we can't keep on meeting like this every nine years. Uh, yes, we can. Well, perhaps we will. In 2029, as, as one of America's great unmaskers, what do you expect to be writing about in 2029? Oh, God knows. I mean, I, I, I do feel as though I, the, the, these two books, Fantasyland and Evil Geniuses, I, I, you know, this is what I have to say, and this is what I have thought that might be useful or interesting about American history of the last 50 years and where we are. Um, so I don't, I'm not going to be doing that. I don't think at this scale of nine years. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm plan I'm plotting a return to fiction and, uh, uh, already well on that way. So what will I be writing? I'm not sure. And I can't even answer the question until November 4th or whatever date it is that we find out how this election went, went, because I agree with you getting rid of Donald Trump is just, is, is a, is a prerequisite, but not even close to sufficient for where we need to go. Um, so if we get rid of him, uh, I, I will have hope. If we don't, I will be for the first time in my life feeling hopeless. Everyone should read, I'm raising it to the camera, uh, Evil Geniuses, uh, Kurt Anderson's latest unmasking of the rottenness of contemporary America. Uh, Kurt, on top of evil geniuses, you're stuck in Connecticut at the moment in this strange year. What else should people be reading in the year of the virus? Um, I just am in the middle of this terrific little book by Ann Applebaum called uh, Twilight of Democracy. Mm -hmm. Really good. Uh, we just had, or we will have Anne on the show. We just interviewed her. So, well, yeah. there you go. I would say it's that. Good, it's There's, a good compliment to your book, a kind of international version of your e evil genius. Correct. And, 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 and the examination of, of totalitarianism, which in this book, as opposed to my last book, I don't really get into. Another book, which is also a kind of companion to this book of mine, is, is a book called Milltown that hasn't come out yet by uh, a woman named Carrie Arsenault about the town she grew up in, Maine and how it was destroyed and ravaged by both environmentally and economically by big business over the last 40 years. It's, it's really good. And, and a really great focused case study on lots of the larger thing, macro things I'm talking about in Evil Geniuses. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.